Hello, hello. Hi. 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 Hello. Oh, oh, I found you guys. I was looking for you guys. Uh, so my name is Joey. I'm a sheep. Uh, I was talking with cousin David, my shepherd, and he mentioned that you guys were actually talking about me, talking about my brothers and sisters. Whoa. Uh, but it seems like you have some misconceptions about sheep. And he asked me to come over and to clarify different aspects of our species. So just to clarify, there's three things you should know about sheep. Number one, we're very cute. It's natural, part of our species, nothing we could do about it. Very obvious, I think I'd be more to say about that. Number two, there's a false rumor that says that sheep are not that smart. That is not true at all. We're just as smart as all the other animals out there. Obviously, this nogging can't do rocket science, but we're pretty smart. And if you tell me Fred the pig is smarter than me, you need to check your head. Okay, number three. At this point, you're thinking sheep are amazing, incredible animals, which is true, but we do have one small itsy-bitsy character flaw. I don't want to bring it up, but I want to give you a full idea of what sheep are. So the problem that we have is we have this trust issue. Okay, I said it, it's out there. I know you guys are surprised, but we have a really difficult time trusting others. So you see these, uh, these muscles here? They're kind of puny. So when the wolves and the robbers come, it's hard for us to fight them off. So over the years, we came up with different strategies. First strategy we tried was try to be very cute. It, it just, it didn't really last that long, right? <laughs> Second strategy we tried is we tried to bleat at them. Bah! Bah! It, it didn't work. The guy just annoyed with us. So the third strategy that really worked that we tried is we stick together. We flock together. So it works great. Safety in numbers, right? But the problem is sometimes we have one guy kind of going off on his own, but because we stick together, we follow him, and sometimes we get into the wrong place at the wrong time. So this is where Cousin David comes in, our shepherd. Right? He looks out for us, he protects us, and he leads us. And we know that we could trust him. You know how I could know? Well, let me tell you a story. A couple of weeks ago, there was a big bad wolf who came to try to snatch us away. And cousin David, our shepherd, jumped in and fought off the wolf and saved us. He risked his life for ours. So we knew he'd protect us. We knew we could trust him. We knew he could love him. So I was talking with cousin David, and he told me about this person, Jesus. And he said, this is what Jesus said. 
I said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep knows me. They know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I give my life for the sheep. So I'm thinking, you guys are very similar to us. Not as cute as us, but very similar in that you guys stick together. And I don't know if you want to hear this, but you guys have a trust issue. You guys don't trust anyone. So I think when we came to our decision, you had the same decision in front of you. Do you want to trust your shepherd? Trust Jesus? So the big question for you is, do you want to follow Jesus as your shepherd? Jesus who gives you all that you need? He is the bread of life. Jesus who shows you the way to go? He is the light of the world. Jesus who will protect you? He's the gate. Well, at least for me, we know that we could trust our shepherd, Cousin David. So the question for you is, can you trust Jesus as your shepherd? So we already figured this out, but you guys still need some time to think about it. And they say we're not the smart ones. Okay. Well, we as sheep have a saying. If you want to trust, we got to pray. So open them, shut them. Oh God, having a shepherd is a must. Open them. Shut them. Help us to follow Jesus in trust. Open them, shut them. Give your hands a clap. Open them, shut them. Fold in your lap. Let's pray. Dear God, you are the great I am. You are the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate, and the good shepherd. Help us to trust in you day by day. We thank you and pray to his name. Amen. All children, you can follow me to the kids' room. You can do your activity sheets at home. Thank you. Our scripture reading for today comes from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 15 through 19. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And then he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardoned your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. The word of the Lord.
The Lord be with you. Thank you. Welcome. Um, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you again for this day that you have made, and we're especially thankful today uh, as we are about to confirm uh, four of our young people. And so we ask that you would be with all of us in the hearing of their testimonies and the hearing of your word. And in the hearing, help us to be strengthened and encouraged to more lovingly, faithfully, and courageously follow you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, Naaman was persuaded by his servants to obey the word of the prophet Elisha to dip himself seven times in the river Jordan. When he did so, we are told that his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. He had been cured of his leprosy. And as a result, as you just heard, Naaman took three related steps. First, he returned to Elisha. Recall that last week, when Naaman first came to visit Elisha, he came with great pride, with all sorts of pomp and circumstance. And he had expected Elisha to show him all sorts of deference because of his position and status. He said, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon his God and, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He had assumed that Elisha would come out to him and stand before him. But now, having been cured, it is he who goes to Elisha and he stands before him in a posture of humility. After his healing, he could have just gone home. Remember when Jesus healed the 10 lepers in Luke 17? Nine of them didn't bother to return to say thank you. Naaman could have done the same thing. But like that one outsider, the Samaritan, who returned to give thanks to Jesus, Naaman also returns to offer thanks in humility. It's really an incredible turnaround and indicative of his inner healing. Second, Naaman makes a public profession of faith. He recognizes what God has done for him, and he declares, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. He declares what he has learned, and he testifies in front of Elisha, in front of Elisha's uh, servants, in front of all the people who had accompanied him, and probably there's a the crowd of people out of curiosity just watching to see what's going on. And he testifies what he knows, what he's experienced in front of them all. And third, he brings a gift for his healing. It's a sign of thankfulness. But notice here that Elisha refuses it. Even though Naaman urges him, Elisha is adamant and refuses to accept anything. It's not that Elisha is opposed to receiving help or gifts. It's not like he's following some unwritten rule in his culture, you know, like in Korea, um, maybe in the East Asian countries, you're supposed to refuse something a couple of times. And then finally, when they ask you a third time, then you can accept it as that's how you're supposed to be polite. It's nothing like that. I think it's just in this case, he wants to make clear that the healing is an entirely a gift of God. He doesn't want even a hint that the healing was somehow paid for or earned or deserved in any way. Now, the story could have ended there. But Naaman then makes two requests 
which I'd like for us to consider more carefully this morning. I chose this text today in particular because after this sermon, like Naaman, we will have four of our students from the class, well, from the confirmation class of 2020, who will make their first public profession of faith. And I want to highlight Naaman's two requests as a way of encouraging them. First, Naaman's first request was to ask for two mule loads of dirt because he says, for from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. He wants dirt to take back home with him to use in his exclusive worship of the God of Israel. Like many other people of his day, he believed that gods were localized to a particular geography. So when he said that, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, he meant that literally, that God is only in the land of Israel. And so he wants to take some of that dirt back with him so that God might feel more comfortable or that God only can be present where there is that land that is associated with God. Remember when Moses first encountered God in the burning bush? God told him to take his sandals off for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Likewise, when Joshua entered the promised land, he also was met by the commander of the Lord's army who told him the same thing. Take your sandals off for the place where you are standing is holy. And so there is this theme of thinking about certain places and lands of being extra special, of being holy. Maybe some of you were taught when you were younger that the sanctuary of the church is holy ground. I remember as a kid that I was told I should never run around in the sanctuary. I could run around in the fellowship hall or around the church, but not in the, not in the sanctuary because that's holy ground. And then as I got older, I was told I can't play the piano unless I was playing, you know, praise songs. Like you can't just play Mozart or something because that's a holy piano because it's in the sanctuary. And then as still older, you know, you can't bring coffee into the sanctuary or food or anything like that because, again, it's, it's consecrated ground. Now, there is something to that, right? The sanctuary, sanctus, is... It's holy, that's the word for holy. And while there is something to the idea of the land of Israel as the promised land, and while certain grounds, certainly like uh, military cemeteries, for example, should and deserve the utmost respect when we are there, we must not think that God is somehow only localized to a particular place. All the earth belongs to God, and all the earth is consecrated and holy unto God. God is not limited to the holy land of Israel, nor to the sanctuary. God is the God of the whole earth, and that's something that Naaman doesn't quite understand at this point. And that's okay. Remember the story of the woman who had a bleeding disease for 12 years. She thought to herself that if only I could touch the hem of Jesus' clothing, I will be made well. She may have thought that there was some sort of magical power in his clothes because it was touching Jesus. She was wrong, of course. 
But Jesus recognized someone reaching out to him in faith, even with wrong ideas. And he healed her. He healed her not because she had the correct understanding about who he is necessarily, but because she reached out in faith. And he recognized that faith, even though that faith was a bit confused. I hope that is an encouragement to all of you. It's a reminder, once again, that your salvation is never because you have all the right answers and correct theology. It's because of grace and because you're reaching out in faith. Like Naaman and everyone else, we all have some mistaken ideas about God, about worship, about faith. And those of you today who are making this beginning in your faith, you're going to have some wrong ideas. And I want you to know, that's okay. It's okay. In fact, I assure you, as all of us know, that even when we have walked with God for some time, even after our faith has matured through experience and study, we are still only seeing as through a glass darkly. What matters isn't that you know everything perfectly about Reformed theology. What matters especially for our confirmands, is that they are taking this step of faith and making a profession of faith based on what they know today, not what they don't know. I remind you once more that you will always have doubts and questions. That's normal. But what matters right now is based on what you know about Jesus Christ, are you willing to place your trust in him? That's the testimony. That's the testimony. The second request that Naaman makes is this. He says that in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimen to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimen, when I bow myself in the house of Rimen, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Now, Naaman has made a commitment to worship the God of Israel and him only. He professed that I know there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. And in light of that profession, he promised, from now on, your servant will offer no burnt offerings to any other God but the Lord. He's fully committed to worshiping God and God only. However, at the same time, he also realizes that when he goes back home, in his duty, in his job as a Syrian general, he will have to accompany the king to the temples of the Syrian god, Rimen, and he will have to bow and participate in the worship of this god that he knows to be false. He knows that this is not what he should do, but given his position, he knows that that is what he's going to have to do. And so he asks God for forgiveness in advance. Let's be very clear here that Naaman is not saying, I'm just going to keep on sinning, I'm going to keep on lying and stealing and do whatever I want, and I just want preemptive forgiveness for all the wrongs that I plan on doing. That is not what he's saying. Rather, because his fundamental orientation is to serve God and God only. He recognizes 
that he will find himself in some potentially and unavoidably compromising situations. Like Naaman, we all face difficult choices in regard to living out our faith in the world. Not everything is going to be spelled out and our confirmants in particular are not always going to know how to live out their faith faithfully in this rapidly changing world, whether at home or at school or in their future careers. And I want to tell you again, that's okay. It's okay. What's important is that all of us commit ourselves fully to God and then try to resolve these issues from that position. It's an orientation that is increasingly difficult to keep. In the recent book, Handing Down the Faith, How Parents Pass the Religion to the Next Generation, the authors Christian Smith and Amy Adamsick make this discouraging but convincing argument that religion has fundamentally changed from, quote, a communal solidarity project to a personal identity accessory. We've gone from a communal solidarity project to a personal identity accessory. That is what faith has become. It used to be that religion and religious practices, at least in this country, were understood to be something shared within a congregation, within a larger community, and you didn't have to be solely responsible for your faith or for the faith of your children. But now faith has dissolved into something that has become just one more accessory that defines the larger goal of personal fulfillment. For many Christians today, even for those self-proclaimed committed Christians today, faith is no longer the core of their identity and what drives and motivates that life. It's more like I've got a good job, I've got a loving family, I've got my fun hobbies, and I've got a little religion. It's just one more accessory that defines their version of the good life. So the church becomes just one more resource in pursuit of my own happiness. Worship is just one more item to be consumed and enjoyed. And if the church fails to serve me and my interests, my convenience, then I can simply drop out or go somewhere else. I don't need this accessory. And I must remind you that this sort of orientation is antithetical to the teachings of Scripture. It is simply incompatible with any reasonable, historical, orthodox understanding of what it means to be a person of faith. Once faith becomes an accessory, God is no longer God. And I want you to notice that that is not what Naaman is doing. It is not an accessory for him. He's not looking to excuse his behavior or to be half-hearted in his commitments. His fundamental orientation is to serve God. And it's because of that commitment that he understands the kinds of difficult choices that he will face when he returns home to a land that is hostile to his faith. Now it's possible, I suppose, that he could have quit his job, quit the military, move his family to Israel and avoid all sorts of questions that he's going to face. 
But that's not realistic. And I would argue it's probably not even preferable. He has to return back to his old life, to his old country, and he has to navigate the challenges of his new faith in his new faith commitments in a culture that is not hospitable to him. And he's made a good start by anticipating one of those challenges, as we all must. This is what our confirmands are facing today. They're committing themselves today, publicly, to follow Jesus and Jesus only. But they are not going to quit school and move into a monastery or something like that. Like Naaman, they will have to navigate and figure out the challenges that their new faith commitment would demand of them. But they're going to choose to fundamentally orient their lives around Jesus. This will be a lifelong challenge. A lifelong challenge. Your parents are still trying to figure this out. Our faith calls us to live in the world, but not to be of the world. Like Naaman, all of us, well, not me, I guess, but all of you will have to return to your jobs Monday morning, to your towns, your extended families after service, and you have to figure out how to live faithfully in communities that do not always understand or are supportive of your faith commitments. You have all faced and will continue to face the questions of how to participate in the life of your family, in the life of your communities, that you will find questionable. You may come from a family of non-believers whose values are just counter to what you believe. You may have extended family who insist that you participate in, in memorial services for your ancestors where you will have to bow and it will feel like worship and wrong to you. You may be asked to attend religious services of a friend who's of a different faith and asked to participate in some sort of way in that worship. Is that okay? Or what many of our young families face today, you may have to participate in some sports activity that requires you to miss Sunday services in order to stay on the team. A friend of mine once described a family that had stopped attending Sunday services at the Presbyterian Church as having switched to the play another tournament on Sunday's church instead. These are not easy decisions. And you will have to answer for yourself what it means to worship God and God only, and what sorts of concessions to societal pressures to protect your jobs, your status, and your reputation is acceptable. When are such choices a matter of convenience or cowardice in not acknowledging your faith? And when are such choices still faithful, acceptable, and reasonable accommodations? You might be wishing that I will give you black and white, clear, simple, and definitive answers to those questions. But you know I can't. But consider the answer that Elisha gives Naaman. Elisha could have said all sorts of things. He could have said, nope, you can't do that. You've got some crazy ideas about dirt. Don't take dirt back. 
He could have said, nope, you cannot go into that temple. You cannot bow down. That is absolutely wrong. He doesn't even offer here any sort of suggestion or advice or wisdom about how he might answer some of those questions. Instead, all he says to him is, go in peace. Go in peace. It's like he's saying, yeah, now that you've fundamentally reoriented your life to God and to serve God only, yeah, you're going to face a lot of challenges. And that's okay. It's okay. Elisha gives him his implicit permission to do those things. He recognizes that this new convert will have to go back to really difficult situations. And so he sends, up, sends him off gently with a word of blessing. Go in peace. He trusts that Naaman, who's committed himself to serving God and God only, will figure it out and that he will evolve in his discipleship. It may be that someday Naaman will realize or decide, you know what, I can't go to the temple anymore. I can't no longer in good conscience serve in the military. I can't do these things because they are misaligned with my faith commitments. But right now, as Naaman begins his journey, Elisha releases him and reassures him in the peace of God. You know, I have to tell you that uh, some biblical interpreters read this passage and simply conclude that Naaman was uncommitted and that Elisha was wrong to send him off in peace. I think that reading is really inconsistent with the rest of the story. The entire point of the story is the healing and salvation of Naaman. And in the epilogue to this story, Naaman's leprosy is transferred to Elisha's servant, whose covetousness, whose affliction and curse is set in contrast to Naaman's generosity, his healing, and his blessing. Naaman, like all those who are starting the journey of faith, is uncertain, full of wrong ideas, and trying to figure out how to integrate his faith into regular, daily, ordinary living. And Elisha is understanding of this young believer. This is not to excuse sin. This is not permission to do whatever you want. Rather, in this particular moment, it is an acknowledgement of the difficulties that Naaman will face as he returns to a land that will be hostile to him. He will experience what many of our overseas missionary partners repeatedly tell us, that it is incredibly difficult to come to faith when everyone in your family, your entire community, in fact, your whole country is opposed to what you believe. It is incredibly difficult to be alone in your faith like that. And that is the situation that Naaman is going to. It takes incredible courage and faith to choose Jesus without any sort of support. They don't need more guilt about the challenges that they will face. They need support and fellowship and words of blessing to be released in peace. In a moment, our confirmands will profess their faith in Jesus Christ. Now they have the advantage of this faith community that Naaman did not have. 
like Naaman, they come today humbly in thanksgiving. They come knowing and trusting that their salvation is by grace and by faith alone. They come today with some wrong ideas about God. And I'm sure I have contributed to that by inadvertently teaching them some wrong things. But they come to testify as best they can of what they know, of what they know. They come not fully realizing all the challenges that lay ahead. They don't come having figured out everything. And that's okay. That's okay. In the coming years, they will make mistakes, they will sin, they will compromise, and they will need us to remind them that they are loved and forgiven by the unchanging faithfulness of God. They will need to hear the words again and again, go in peace, go in peace. Most of you here today made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ at some point in your life. Recall, if you can, what it meant when you first made that commitment. Didn't you also, over the years, grow in your understanding of what that commitment meant and evolved in your beliefs and commitments? It takes time, and we're all still trying to figure it out. So let's bless our young people today as they take the step in their journey and let's pray the peace of God upon them. Please pray with me. Lord, again, we thank you for this time together and we thank you for your word. We thank you for those who are about to make their commitments to you and help us. Help us to bless them and to recognize that we have all fallen short. We all hold mistaken ideas. And none of us has figured out how to live entirely faithfully in this world. And so God, we ask that you would help us to make good decisions, to know what is a faith, and give us the courage to be faithful. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.